0: Dr. Dale on quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, Hello everybody and welcome to this month's edition of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau and another great topic. We're going to continue some discussions we've been having for the last two months and as always, our esteemed guest Dr. Dale Rollins is with us. Hello, Dale. Good morning, Gary. It's great to see you again. Well, it's a time of year that uh, I think a lot of people are starting to think about Uh, some topics of interest uh, and particularly we've been for the last two months talking about Dr. Aldo Leopold's five tools and I think you wanted to continue that discussion today.
1: Yeah, we're going to wrap up this discussion and again as we've gone through for the last two months, Aldo Leopold is the guy that's recognized as the father of wildlife management and uh, very highly quoted, very readable today. I encourage all of our readers to uh, You can get one of his less expensive books called uh, A Sand County Almanac. Mm-hmm. It cost costs you about seven bucks. Right. And after you read that, you will be hooked on Aldo Leopold. He uh, had a certain insight and prose, and it's highly quotable, so I encourage it to everybody. But the, the quote that's been, that's been the uh, impetus for these last several series is something that came out of the preface of his 1933 book, Game Management, and therein he said... The central thesis of game management is this, game can be restored by the creative use of the same tools which have heretofore destroyed it, ax, plow, cow, fire, and gun. And so I wanna want to reiterate the creative use. Right. And so we've gone through how the ax and plow and cow and fire relate to uh, quail management in Texas. That last one, the gun, that kinda had to me thrown for a loop because that's not really a, a habitat management tool. I mean, if we were talking here about deer in Arizona or something, we'd say, well, we've got to control the herd. If you ask your average quail hunter, why do you hunt quail? How do you defend the the hunting of quail? They're going to say, "Uh, well, if we don't hunt them, they'll overpopulate and destroy the habitat. That's right. Quail are incapable of doing that. So uh, it, it kind of threw me for a loop about how we justify the use of quail or the use of hunting as one of Leopold's tools. But then you get to thinking, who's funding quail conservation? And at least in Texas, it's typically not the state game conservation. It's private landowners and private hunters, it's private sportsmen. So it's, it's a user tax that they've uh, levied on themselves and so forth and, uh, and a task that they say, hey, if we don't do it, who's gonna do it? So we're gonna talk a little bit about the role that hunting plays in the conservation of quail. And there's several precedents for this. In 1935, there was what's called the Pittman-Robertson Act. That's probably the most important legislation that's ever been passed in terms of wildlife management. And it levied a, an excise tax on sporting arms and ammunition. So each year, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department gets a pretty good chunk of money based on sales of firearms and ammunition and it's a three to one match. In other words, they kept, feds come up with three three parts, Parks and Wildlife has to uh, match that with 25%, so it's a, it's a good deal. And so they guard that money quite jealously and it funds a lot of kind of things. But when you think about some of the conservation organizations that have had a big impact over the last 60, 70 years, some of them come to are Ducks Unlimited, uh, the uh, National Rocky Mountain Wildlife Federation, a lot of things that kind of came about as a result of, of Ted, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt and some of his passion for That's quail. Right. Now the National Wild Turkey Federation is going great guns. And then about I don't know, I want to say about the mid 80s there was a group that came out with quail. It's called Quail Unlimited. It had a pretty productive life for about uh, 23 or four years and then back in about 2008 it began to have some issues and problems that we'll discuss later. Uh, but it basically dissolved. And so now there's a void. And so in Texas, that void was filled. And the guy that filled that void today is our guest today. So I wanted him to give us a history and and some of that, about how that works. Our guest today is Joe Crafton. Joe lives here in Dallas. Um, Joe was raised in Tennessee. I like to say T for Texas and T for Tennessee where he split his two uh, passions. And he's been very active in Texas. He's been responsible for the evolution of what we call Quail Coalition, uh, specifically a chapter here in Dallas called Park City's Quail Coalition, which as a member of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, we credit them with being the wind under our research wings. Over the last 11 years, they've contributed about $7 million dollars and operational funds are hard to find. So they've been instrumental to our efforts and Joe is a master architect of that, how that quail coalition developed and expanded. He uh, serves on the board of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation as the president of the Park City's Quail Coalition and he's been a big promoter of the Boy Scouts Association, Boy Scouts of America, I'm sorry, uh, for many, many years. So uh, he's got a passion, obviously, and he also serves on the Upland Game Bird Advisory Committee that Texas Parks and Wildlife holds. So he's been very active and very passionate about quail, and I hope we'll share some of that passion with our listeners today. So um, one of the things that uh, I want to mention real quickly, back I think it was in about 2009, Joe had an interest in in uh, assembling the genome, the genetic makeup of the Bob White. And so he funded a study, and we, uh, we collected a quail out on the research ranch. It was a female. It was a hen. Uh, he named it after his mother, Patty Marie. So <laughs> Patty Marie is the first cloned Bob White. We worked with our colleagues down at College Station. And so now we have the complete genome of the Bob White. And uh, so, Joe, with that, welcome. I guess my first question for you is, where did you get your passion about quail and quail hunting?
2: Well, hello, Dale. It's great to be with you again. <clears throat> Glad to be with someone who's almost as crazy for quail as I am, or maybe it's it's a tie. But we spend a lot of our time talking about it. It's always good to be with you here or in the field. Um, yeah, I developed my passion for quail, really, uh, quail hunting. Um, my father was always a quail hunter. We grew up in West Tennessee. It used to be the capital of quail hunting in the country. Grand Junction was just a few miles from our farm. We still had the farm. We It's almost 200 years in, the same fa- in our family, but it uh, doesn't have quail like it used to. Um, but growing up, my dad always had a bird dog. I never saw him as happy as it when he was heading out to the field to go quail hunting. and that, that enthusiasm rubbed off on me, and then I was responsible for taking care of the bird dog. And um, of course, loving to see them at their fullest uh, purpose. It was always fun to see to go out in the field and hunt in North Mississippi and West Tennessee. <clears throat> but um, as I saw that deplete, it really broke my father's heart. I think um, the saddest thing in his life was the decline of quail in in the farmland of of West Tennessee, the Delta, Mississippi, Arkansas, where it used to be common for him to go out the back door with his brother and and come home with a with a sack full of birds. So um, <clears throat> watching that decline, uh, it kind of it kind of went dormant, the passion. <clears throat> when I moved to Texas for the second time in 2000, uh, I went out quail hunting, and we found 20 coveys, and I thought I had gone to heaven, and uh, it changed my life. I, I said, I can't wait to bring my brothers out <clears throat> Excuse me, for, another, for a full day of 20 coveys of birds. And so um, that lit a fire in me uh, that, that has been burning ever since. Something it had to do with the fact that my father had recently passed, and it, to me, when I was in the field... Um, it reminded me of my dad. Every time I laced up my boots or loaded my gun bag or put on my vest, it, it reminded me of my dad. So that that's been a very romantic notion for me, but it's it's been very fulfilling. And uh, I've not, done a lot of cool things. I've shown a helicopter, hogs for a helicopter. I've you know hella skied. I've done you know fly fishing and everything else. But I've never found anything that
1: has replaced the thrill of watching a covey rise. Good enough for me. I tell you, again, being from Tennessee, and some of our most passionate landowners in Texas, folks like Rick Snipes, folks like yourself, grew up in that South, those southeastern mm-hmm. states where the heritage mm-hmm. of quail hunting is so steeped, but now it's almost forgotten kind right. of thing. Um, and I know they have the, the Grand National um, hunt, and Grand Junction. Yeah. And Grand Junction. Tell us what's going on there. It's well, you
2: know, in the, each region of the country has its own maladies that, that affect quail. Um, from my perspective and from what I've read, the, the farming practices are its, big, its biggest enemy. Very efficient farming. All my cousins farm with uh, large tracts of land, no hedgerows, modern equipment that goes edge to edge, leaving nothing, no habitat, no cover, no escape cover. Uh, and then they hit it hard with pesticides, which kill all the, bur- the bugs, because we know chicks need bugs. And then they hit it with herbicides, kill all the weeds. So their view of a, a beautiful farm is an uninterrupted uh, long track of straight lines that have no weeds and no bugs. Well, that's the, like a quail desert. Mm-hmm. And um, my father grew up in patchwork farms of 50 acres here, 40 acre paddock here, a, a row of thickets. and. And some slack land and uh, they, they weren't as efficient with with killing bugs and and weeds and so it, quail the quail boom from what i understand is was really a byproduct of sloppy farming and then clean farming is is, is now reversed much of that so i i do believe that's its number one enemy and and i have struggled at my own farm in tennessee my brothers who share it with me they want to make money and i want to make quail and it's really those things are sometimes
1: at, at odds and I know I can relate to that in Oklahoma, southwestern Oklahoma because my brother-in-law and I used to quail hunt all the time. And he had a bird dog, and then his bird dog got killed, and he traded his bird dog in for a Bermuda grass burger. Well, <laughs> that's like a knife in my heart. <laughs> I guarantee you it. know because the Bermuda grass and quail just don't don't jive very well. Right. Uh, I know you've had some great dogs over here, and I just give you a chance to um, wax. Ell- eloquently about uh, what, what was your favorite dog? Well, I, I love the, the retrieving part of
2: the, the game. A lot of people love the point, and I do love the point, but it's just as rewarding to me as when I think I killed a bird and I saw it hit the ground, but you're never quite sure until that lab or that Cocker Spaniel brings it back and puts it in your hand. So uh, my favorite dog is my current dog. I've got a lifetime dog named Lucy, who's a British lab, uh, came from Wild Rose Kennels and trained him for Upland. And um, she stays within 10, 20 yards of me and, and walks out front. I've got a command that says, uh, get on, and she, she's in front of me. And if she gets too far, I'll say, hunt close, and she'll pull back so she doesn't bust a bird because she's not going to hold. Mm-hmm. But what she will do is, is mark really well and bring it back. Um, I've had Bandit, I've had bandit etched on the side of my gun, toughest dog I've ever seen. People say setters aren't tough. Setters can be very tough. And I uh, remember one time having bandit with a face full of porcupines, and we went back to the truck. And on the way back to the truck, she pointed a covey with a face full of porcupine quills. So that's another memorable dog. But I grew up with a dog named Chip. Is my dad's dog, and uh, wasn't a great dog, but it was uh, it was a companion. So you know, I'd, I'd love to get her out, get him out in the field. So I uh, I hope to have more. And I thought I had good pointers until I met some real good pointers. Then you start. Realizing you shouldn't brag on your dog till after the hunt, because uh, <laughs> you meet you meet world class dogs like my friend Rick Snipes, or I know you've got some some betters, and you're very fond of your dogs. But one thing I've learned is the dog only has to please one person—that's his owner. That's true. He hunt the way I want to hunt. That's that's,
1: that's okay with me. And most of us appreciate the fact that our dogs are better than we deserve. <laughs> that's yeah. a fact. Uh, what would you say? And I've been on quail hunting with you a couple of times back during some of the glory days of fifteen sixteen, but. Is there a special quail hunt that you'll say, I will always remember this, I can show you a GPS location mm-hmm. of where I was standing kind of thing? Yeah, I think take going out with my youngest son and, uh, you
2: know, you can't really quail hunt effectively until you're about 14, 12 or 14. People take their kids out when they're real young. But, you know, to be able to hold a gun and walk and get your feet in the right place and stand in the right place and understand the game and be safe. But my 16-year-old boy and I went out uh, one day, and it was just like, an orc- it was like a ballet. It, the dogs were perfect. The wind was perfect. Um, I know you don't like when people kill doubles and triples because you're a lot more likely to lose a bird or not be able to mark it real well. And you you sometimes get on to me about that. But but both of us doubled on a, on a covey rise, and uh, it was right next to a big sand uh, berm in uh, in West Texas, and I, I I can still picture it in my mind. I. Right.
1: I tell people I can. I shot my first bird on the wing when I was 13 years old with a 410. And it's like I can relive that situation today. Just, yeah. just see how that arc of that bird was, and I can show you with GPS precision where I was standing that day. So, right. Thankfully, we have those kind of memories. Um, let's get into this idea about how Quail Coalition arose from the ashes of uh, Quail Unlimited because Quail Unlimited uh, was, was a national organization. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then the began to some issues. And so Texas was kind of a thorn in their side, I think. So
2: well, tell us a little I, bit I'll, about
1: that. Yeah, let me let me kind of
2: pontificate on that for a minute. My friend, Rusty Rice and I um, were, were hunting buddies and Rusty still are, and, and Rusty and I went out on that 20-covey day and he introduced me to Texas quail hunting <clears throat> and, um, and I tried to replicate it. So I brought my brothers down and I had the same guide and the same, and, and had arranged for the same piece of property. And I get there and and he had some borrowed dogs that turned out to be about six months, eight months old, puppies basically. He couldn't get on the original piece of track that we talked about. We ended up hunting some other jack leg place and it was the most disappointing experience and all three of my brothers had come in for that. And I I, and I started thinking, I am not connected to the quail hunting royalty of Texas. And there is a, definitely a group of people that have figured it out and they've got it dialed in and I'm an outsider, so we started, realizing that a lot of my friends were quail hunters but there was no organization. I searched the web to see if there was a quail hunting unlimited chapter in Memphis in Dallas excuse me there was none they'd gone dormant for whatever reason Dallas Fort Worth is a big place and when you have seven million people across four counties um, it's hard to get a nucleus a, a earthy center of the group so we decided to uh, and I to start a chapter of quail unlimited contacted quail unlimited they didn't have a chapter they were excited about it reserved the Dallas Country Club, and we raised $85,000, uh, which was the, a record for any chapter in the country. And we knew we'd really hit, hit a lick, and we'd had uh, 500 people show up, so sold out crowd. Glad the fire marshal didn't come. Um, and, uh, and Dale spoke, and part of it was that we had a real cause, because Roland Plains Corral Research Foundation and Ranch had started in 2006, I think, and we started in 2007, and so it was just meant to be. And um, and people could get excited about a local cause, but I got some blowback from some people that said, you know, Quail Unlimited takes half of our, half of your revenue and takes it to South Carolina and and uses it for their magazine, uses it for, to promote quail hunting, to start new chapters. And this is not a migratory bird. It doesn't fly from South Carolina or, or even from Oklahoma to Dallas. So you're really sending money into organization and then You could question whether it's going to be any benefit, unlike some of the migratory animals. And and they didn't spend any money on research, none. They weren't in a financial position. They had employees, they had magazines, they had celebrity quail hunts and all that that they put on. So I made a deal with Quail Unlimited that you know we could raise a lot more money if we could keep it locally because it's a local bird. So I talked to the head of Quail Unlimited. I said, if if we guarantee you $40,000, which is the split from the previous year, if I write you a check for forty thousand dollars, will you let us keep everything above that? And I think we can raise some money. So they said they would do that. And that next year, um, we, we had the idea to ask Boone Pickens to accept a special award called the Lifetime Sportsman Award, and we raised uh, six hundred forty thousand dollars. <laughs> so so we went from eighty to six forty. And Quail Limited was elated. They put us on the cover of their magazine. They came down here and 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 took photos and. And uh, made a big to do to do out of it, and then they told me, well, I can't do that next year because I'm leaving three hundred fifty thousand dollars on the table. And I told the president, I said, that's not the way it works. We would not have raised six fifty if people thought that three hundred and twenty five were, were going to North South Carolina. So they said, if we, if you, said that my board directors had informed me that I have to stay with the same deal, fifty fifty. And I said, well, my board has told me that if you do that, we're going to have to start our own five hundred one c three. And he, he said, well, it's harder than you think. And I said, well, I think I can probably manage to start a 501c3. And so we did, and then since then, we've been averaging 800 to a million and a half every year. It all stays in Texas. It all goes to research and education. It, there's, no, there's no corporate employees. There's no, none of the directors make any money. We, we all buy our own tickets to the dinner. We've kept it very efficient and, and how much we spend. Volunteers set up the tables. Volunteers uh, do all the work. Get the silent auction items. Almost every one of our items is 100% donation for for both for live auction and silent auction. So we we'll raise you Sorry. know two and a half million and two million will go to the bottom line. So that's really been a great a way to to do several things. For one thing, be able to control our destiny. But number two, to be able to keep it local and not and and. Against our mission and nothing that's not
1: on our mission. And I know at the time there, there was some uh, angst about why Texas wasn't typically included in the magazine at that time. You know, it was it was all pine plantations, right? And where their where their heart, where their right. main focus was. But again, main, a lot of the money has been raised out here with Park Cities and South Texas. Chapter Quail and Edmonton. I know there was a little bit of angst about. Yes. Yeah.
2: Well, it was there was a, it was I think five of the top seven chapters in the country were Texas, and so when you do all that work, you know you you'd like for some of it every now and then to have a prickly pear cactus or a little or a blue stem plant in it, but everything was pine needles and and, uh, and and mules and horses, and so we we didn't feel like they were uh, there was anxiety and and frustration. There was even an agreement that 10% of, the, of what we raised in Texas was gonna come back to a special fund that was gonna fund Texas-specific research and projects that we could control as a Texas Texas region of Quail Unlimited. That promise was broken. Uh, they had several hundred thousand dollars they owed Texas. They never paid it. And people were just gripey, but what, what was the alternative? So when we started Park City's Quail, 501c3, we re- I reached out to the other chapters in Texas and offered them an opportunity to join us with the same type of agreement, no over, you know, very low overhead. And um, at the time, they said, you know we, we, we grew up under the Quail Unlimited tree, we wanna stay with them. And that went on for another two years. The promises kept being broken by Quail Unlimited, and finally they all, uh, right about the time, Quail Unlimited folded. Um, and from what was left of it was bought by Quail Forever. They bought basically their database and, their, um, and what was left in their magazine, and that was it. Uh, and we, in Texas formed, joined parts is quail, and we now have uh, I think 12 chapters and about 5,000 members. And throughout the state, it's, it is the de facto organization for, for quail research and, and education.
1: And as one of the beneficiaries of that uh, at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation I can only say, whoopee, Good job, attaboy, boy. Because again, y'all have went. I mean, I, I remember our first gift from y'all. Our first check was twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, but over the next three years, that it went up to like five hundred fifty thousand dollars, eight hundred thousand dollars. So again, uh, and it's not just Rolling Plains crowd Research. Yeah. We, we get we get a good part of it, but y'all are supporting other research going on at uh, Texas Tech and Soul Ross and various players like that, that spread across Texas.
2: Yeah, let me speak to that. We have a, a committee, a grant committee made up of volunteers. They're all quail hunters. They're all very authentic uh, people and they review uh, requests for for grants and we look at, um, we look at to make sure that, that fits within the tapestry of, of what else we're doing. We don't want to have three different researchers working on th- the same project. We, re- we were blessed because we have some real quality Research organizations in Texas, um, and we've been we get quality requests for proposal. The hardest thing is to turn people down because there's so many good projects being done locally that add to the body of knowledge. And one of the requirements is they have to share what they learn. So one thing I appreciate about Rolling Plains, many things, but one of the things about Rolling Plains Square Research Foundation is everything they do is shared with anybody who cares to to learn about. There's no turfy. You know, um, proprietary information that they're going to try to worry about somebody stealing their idea. So that's a that's a requirement, and we, and that selection committee just met last night, as a matter of fact, and and we're we're looking at the, uh, at the proposals, and we're about to make some decisions about where the money goes.
1: One of the things, Joe, that I, I attribute it to you. I'm not sure if you were the. Author of this phrase, but probably 10 years ago, there was an article in, I believe, Shooting Sportsman mm-hmm. called Tom Davis. America's yeah. Greatest Conservation Tragedy. Mm-hmm. Bob White's yeah. being the greatest conservation tragedy, which, you know, first is a, a wake up call, mm-hmm. I guess. So, elaborate on what you're thinking well yeah, on
2: that. that. He really uh, synthesized my feeling in, because having lived in a place that used to have quail and lost quail in my lifetime. Uh, he used the phrase uh, "quail could be recreationally extinct." That's a powerful phrase. Recreationally extinct. They still have them, just like you. You know, you might see a, a, a rare bird, but uh, the fact that it wouldn't it would no longer be a recreation, uh, uh, which affects the dogs, the dog trainers, the people that love to do it, and we'd all become sporting clay people. You know, um, and. When he called it America's greatest wildlife tragedy, what he he said was we've lost 85% of our birds since 1965. So that's my lifetime, 85% of the birds. And and the Audubon Society had claimed it was the largest collapse of any bird in in North America at that time. I don't know if it still is. But boy, you talk about hitting you right in the gut. And um, it, it really became more about, from that point on, for me it wasn't, where can I find the best quail hunting? It's how can we restore quail hunting to the historical range of quail, um, because they, there are people who have who have quail in Virginia, people have quail in North in, in New Jersey, in Maryland, um, North Carolina, South Carolina. It's not like, you know, uh, it's not like a polar bear where they're only be found in one place. Their quail was one time one of the most widely distributed birds. Forty something states have it. So, how can we get quail? Uh, to where the average person can hunt it again, and it's not a elitist um, type thing. I, I hunt in England quite a bit, and in England, it is a it is a aristocratic game to shoot birds, and they're all having to be, they were all created by the landowner and the gamekeeper, and they all shot, and it's a it's a fun, high society type activity, but it's not something you can take your kid to, you can't expose a person a new hunter to it because it's too expensive and too frustrating, it's just a, it, and so we don't want to become that. We want this to be, a, just like fishing, a very
1: egalitarian type activity. And that's one of the things that we don't often think about is that we're killing the goose that laid the golden egg. If we're not doing a good job of recruiting those 14, right. 18, 20, I would say even 40-year-old quail hunters, oh, yeah. and we're not doing a good job of that, and our trajectory as a number of hunters is going down fairly quickly. So. You, and, and it's a wake-up call to all of us to be more cognizant about that. Absolutely, and and I've talked to
2: a lot of incredible sportsmen, uh, famous people that you would know, that are household names, and they've done it all: bear hunting. They've done, you know, they've, they've thigh-fished in Patagonia. They've, you know, shot sheep in Uzbekistan or whatever. But they will tell you their favorite favorite thing to do is go quail hunting. It's just, it's it's an access problem. It's a it's a quantity problem. You lose eighty-five percent of a of a Game, the game birds, it, it really pulls back. So, I wanted to be part of the solution. And and you use the phrase a lot of times, not on my watch. You know, it, we may have something that that we tell our grandkids about one day, or I tell my grandkids about one day that we lost the bird. But it's not going to be because we just sat there and did nothing. That's not going to happen. We may burn ourselves up uh, trying, but we're gonna we're gonna try to do more to give back and create more. Opportunity than we than we actually used,
1: and one of the greatest vehicles vehicles that y'all have done over the last twelve years is this T Boone Pickens Lifetime yeah. Sportsman Award, mm-hmm. which uh, again that first year generated twenty thousand dollars or so, and this last year, two point two million. Right, right
2: at two million dollars, one point nine five. When uh, and so yeah, it, it it exceeded anybody's expectations. When we put that first dinner together, we said, Hey, email your friends. We're all getting together. Here's the date and and I remember we put it together on a photocopier and a, an a overhead projector and, um, and some borrowed microphones. And so now it's a big production. We call it Conservation's Greatest Night um, because nobody else had claimed that title and so we thought we would. Uh, and it is though, Every, people come and they, and they travel in for it and they tell people it is their favorite night of the year. Um, uh, and and, and it, we've d- determined that people don't really want to hear a lot of science at that dinner. They want to have fun. They want to see their friends. They want to feel good about the movement and realize that they're connected to, through a brotherhood or sisterhood of other people that are gentlemen and ladies who love the finer points of something that's difficult but rewarding and it's very dog dependent. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to describe why it's such a romantic notion, but it's it's kind of like fishing with dry flies. It's more difficult. There's a lot of easier ways to get protein than than fly fishing or or bird hunting. Um, but it is so satisfying when it, when it all comes together.
1: I can remember, I think it was the 16 banquet when you had kind of a sampler video to begin the thing about Covey Rises and mm. because 16 was just a magical year and you had like five minutes of just One covey rise after another, and I I still remember that. Yeah, several of my dogs were featured, but uh. yeah, they were featured, (laughs) and
2: and we cut out the parts where you were where you were were getting on them. (laughs) I think I heard you mutter "world class dog" right there (laughs) one time. But but it's funny. Go to YouTube and look at uh, Wild Texas Quail Hunting, and I think we have fifty thousand hits on it now. So it's it's kind of the greatest hits of just the covey rises, not the misses, not the not the uh, non-productive points, but the real real deal.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to next year because I know your honoree is Bubba Woods, who's yeah. an icon, yeah. and That's I right. had a chance to take Bubba on a quail hunt in 2016. Now, Bubba was uh, an Olympic skeet shooter, I think. World champion, guy, world, world champion. World champion skeet shooter, so, and still an excellent shot, and so my dog Shag's on point out there about 40 yards, and I'm videotaping him, and he walks out there and Eighteen birds bust out of there, and he whiffs twice. So there's not many people that'll have anything on that. But uh, well, he probably would tell you he
2: was in such awe of the rise because he's also a lover of art and and wildlife, and he probably was just stunned and and, and had the what what you call deer fe- buck fever. He probably had uh, quail fever right there.
1: Well, and and again, our our quail and our, and our motivation out here is to keep wild quail. Yes because again, so many of the bird hunting, so much of the quail hunting east of Texas, east of i really, is pen-reared birds. And, and some pen-reared birds are better than others, but I always tell people it's kind of like kissing your sister and there's just nothing like that wild explosion of birds and, and getting out of there. Yeah, port.
2: that's that's fact, right. and, and I, there's a, I'd love taking some a new, novice hunter or a child and take them out and put them over quality pin raised birds it's a safe way to teach the sport you get all the elements you get a pointing dog you get a retrieving dog you get you get a challenging shot sometimes most times Um, for the purest, it it doesn't replace wild quail hunting and so i'll use the fishing analogy you know you can catch with with crickets and minnows. uh you know but if you're you know you're really a purest fly fisher you'd rather catch it on a hand-tied fly and um so it's a different type of a lot of times the pin-raised birds will be four or five birds in a clutch, mm-hmm. but when you see 15 birds get up in every possible direction, like little
1: rockets, um, it's a different experience. Yep. Uh, going back to the T. Ben Piggins Lifetime Sportsman Award, uh, tell us some of the recipients of that over the last 12 years. <clears throat> so we started off with a gentleman named Walter Kellogg, and Walter was a
2: mentor of mine, and he, was, he had owned dozens of bird dogs. He helped me find a bird dog myself and just a really neat guy from Amarillo who'd moved to Dallas, and and his son was a friend of mine. Um, And he unfortunately passed right before the event, but he was a gentleman, and he was a connoisseur of the sport, and he promoted the sport, and he introduced people like me to the the sport. Um, The next year was Boone Pickens, famous person, drew a huge crowd, and a lot of excitement. But we've had uh, people that are not nationally known, uh, we've had famous dog trainers, like Delmer Smith was a real interesting, neat deal. We had Ray Sasser, who was an outdoor rider. We've had Ted Turner, who is a th- real quail hunter. I mean, 410s, walking, uh, deadly shot. Uh, and and the, his train, I uh, hunted his place, and he his people say he's one of the best wing shooters they've ever seen. Uh, we've had famous people uh, like George Strait, who loves to. Loves to sh- to hunt. Grew up he's more of a deer hunter, but he grew up hunting with his brother, and he gave a tremendous speech. I'd encourage you to watch it on our w- website. Um, we've had Tom Brokaw, who's obviously who's a, more of a pheasant hunter, but very pro hunting, and and it takes a lot of courage to be pro hunting in his world of New York media. Um, and then we've had uh, you know some people that that are lesser known, but but have fascinating stories about how they. Love to hunt and how they, you know, Rick Snipes is not going to be a household name, but boy, you talk about the complete deadly shot, lover and trainer of bird dogs, Uh, steward of this property. It's got the most beautiful quail ranch. Um, Reader and voracious study, he he reads the research and he follows the research, and um, he was one of the most popular. Then A. V. Jones, who made lots of money in, in oil and gas investments and is wildly successful as a businessman. Quail hunting is how he thinks of himself. That's how he identifies himself uh, out of Albany. Um, so just a real mixture of great people and last year was was uh, Johnny Morris, the founder of Bass Pro Shop and CEO and chairman. and uh, wow, what a great story he had and he, he gave us a $1 million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars a year over the next 10 years out of his foundation so um we've been very blessed to have amazing people and it and you think you'd run out every year like how are we going to find another person and just as we think about it we find another fascinating person who has a fascinating story to tell every one of them has been its
1: own little jewel and i've been to a lot of fundraisers as many of our listeners have it is truly conservation's greatest night and y'all my Kudos to you because it is so well done. There's no lags in the. Uh, it's it's very well timed. Pete Delkus does a great yeah, job he, of uh, moderating the right. thing. Uh, you've got your PA system loud enough for everybody here, which is always a major right. obstacle. But you guys hold a bar very high, and it's if you've never been to the Park Cities uh, t boom Pickin' Sportsman Award, I'd encourage you to when you find out the tickets are available. Get one because it's something that everybody needs to see.
2: Yeah, and you bring up a good point. You know, we, we it, it is about that night, and we and we uh, we sell out about three months before the event, which is highly unusual. And the but but it's not not everybody can spend three hundred bucks on a quail hunt, on a one dinner plus buy raffle tickets plus buy <laughs> silent or live auctions. So we recognize that one of our challenges going forward is not to just make it about that night. Put put the speeches on the web. Put the speeches on Facebook. Um, allow people to have that experience with who, who, who don't feel like the dinner is a priority for them or can't travel, um, so so we we do want to be a bigger tent and more inclusive and be uh, not just give money to research which benefits everybody, but also give um, give education and content to the average person so that you feel the affinity. I'm a member of lots of organizations. You know, I'm a member of Ducks Unlimited, and I'm a member of Delta Waterfowl, and I'm a member of, uh, you know, Rough Grouse Society. So there's, they give me content, although I've never been to any of their dinners. I'm sure I'm a little embarrassed to say, but um, I want I want everybody to have that ability who has an interest in this subject.
1: Well, one of the uh, accolades that I think you've received recently is from the Boy Scouts, uh, the Joe Crafton Sportsman's Complex. Tell us what that's all about.
2: Well, uh, several years ago, Boy Scouts built their fourth high adventure camp. Everybody knows Philmont in New Mexico, and there's a Northern Tier, which is a canoeing experience up in Minnesota and the, the in the in Canada. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a, so this one is the the summit, and it's a 10,000 acre facility in West Virginia. It's the most ex- well developed and, and elaborate camp of any in the world. Um, we hold our jamboree there, and and it's a summer camp. But um, we, we built, uh, the Boy Scouts, we built the Joe Crafton Sportsman's Complex. And what it does, is it takes you through an interactive experience where you see the history of the Boy Scouts and shooting. Over two million merit badges have been earned in shotgun and, and uh, rifle. Um, but the founder of the Boy Scouts in England was a big hunter. The founder of the Boy Scouts in the United States was a big hunter. So it shows a little uh, diorama of their, of their accomplishments in hunting. Then he talks about the, the, the things that hunters have done for, the, for Wild Game, it's people that don't realize that, that if it weren't for the hunters, we wouldn't have the return of the turkey, the return of, the, of waterfowl ducks, uh, the white-tailed deer. Those are all huge success stories. And, and Edge Game, that 85% of all conservation dollars come from hunters' fees or, or uh, permits and, and the Pittman Robinson that you talked about earlier. 85% of all funding for conservation comes from that. And so it takes you through some of those quotes, some of the quotes from Theodore Roosevelt and Leopold and others. And then um, it also t- so it ties in the heritage and then, it, and then it encourages people to go to their local area and learn about hunting opportunities. So my concern is like a lot of people, that you look around at some of these conferences and it's, it's a lot of older people. And um, the world's become much more urban and much more tidy and neat and, um, and people aren't spending as much time in the outdoors. And so we're trying to recruit a whole new generation. Uh, last year we had um, uh, 80,000 people come through and, uh, and people from all over the world shot shotguns and realized, hey, that was fun. And they saw that the concert, that, that hunters equals habitat, which equals wildlife. And, and that correlation is counterintuitive. If you love animals, why do you kill them? Well, I try to explain, you know, on the ranch where I hunt, we have about, on a good year, we'll have 5,000 birds, and they're there because we hunt, and we create the habitat and the food and the shelter and the escape cover and so forth. So 5,000 birds on a good year, I might take 100 to 200 birds. So two to three percent of the birds I'm taking. But if it weren't for the fact they're a hunter, that rancher would be grazing. He'd plant cotton. He would. There would be very few, if any, birds on the land. So this counterintuitive argument, you know that that I hate, I love birds, why would I kill them? I love birds so much that I have a, a, a recreation that puts me with them and gives me a purpose for going there. Otherwise the whole, if it weren't for hunters, the whole North American conservation model would collapse. And uh, trying to get that across is very difficult. And I appreciate what you know, uh, you're know, you doing here with this blog and, and this uh, podcast, because I think we're, we're turning people on, especially what you're doing with Bob Raver introducing more people, to this concept that hunters need game, but game needs hunters.
1: And the idea that uh, the quail serves as the bobwhite, uh, as the canary of the prairie. right? Because again, riding on the coattails of the bobwhite, which we love and manage, mm-hmm are a whole slew of grassland birds that are never gonna be hunted. Right. But if it wasn't for the Bob White, there would be no incentive for managing for that kind of habitat. Great point.
2: I, if I created a dinner for the meadowlarks or the scissor tail flycatcher, I would not sell three tables. Mm-hmm. Just It's just not the nature. Birdwatchers buy binoculars, okay? Quail hunters buy everything that goes with quail hunting and they also lease the land. Meadowlark Society does not lease land, they do not, convert farmland and, 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 uh, and grazing land into ideal songbird habitat. So um, it's a tough message to get out there, but we're doing what we can here in, in this little community and across the state to try to change that.
1: Well, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners about what's on the horizon or some of the things to, to look for from Quail Coalition or from the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation?
2: well you know we we uh, we're proud of the fact that there's a great partnership there and that we have aligned ourselves with really good organizations like you uh, the, the quail tech people Brad Dalbert uh, tall timbers out of Florida um, and you know even uh, other organizations across the country to, to share best practices um, I do believe that the the legacy of our organization is 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 going to be you know three things um, one we organized a community of people that didn't know that we were all each other out, out there in the community, but we organized that and created a community of quail hunters. We did pay for the bobwhite genome and every, is the first bird of, in the U.S. to be um, to be uh, fully mapped, 100, uh, excuse me, a million unique genetic markers for a bobwhite quail. And we hope that it becomes the white rat of laboratory research and that people will compare that and use that in their studies. And we learn a lot more about the difference between a wild bird and a Virginia bird and a Florida bird and a Texas bird. So that will we'll be remembered for that. And then also this medicated feed. Um, I'm bullish on it. Uh, a lot of the pictures that you see on medicated feed um, are were taken by me, In my that's my hand in the picture. Uh, I have 70% of the birds I harvested last year, last five years have been infested with eye worms that you can see visually without a microscope and um, it is a it is a jarring um, thing to hold in your hand. And it's an invisible killer because most people don't look in the eye of their bird when they harvest it. They they, they put it in the bag, give themselves a high five to the, their partner and move on. It's it's a uh, game changer to have a medicated feed. Now, we don't know if this is the panacea, the col- it doesn't solve all your problems. It's, it's, you know, weather and habitat are foundational, but healthy birds, if you had a sports team, You'd say you have to have great athletes, you have to have great coaching. But what makes the difference between a Super Bowl champion and not, is it healthy athletes? If you get injuries, you know, you're not gonna win the Super Bowl. Our injured birds are, they already have a tough life. 80 something percent die through predation in the wild. And then you add, I can't see my, to find food and I can't see a hawk coming down on me. It's, it's a crippling thing to a bird that's already handicapped. So I hope, that we are successful and I'm confident that we're successful that getting the medicated feed approved by the FDA we heard from the, directly from the FDA yesterday that she believes it's a matter of months not years and we've been at this five years now and spent a lot of money doing it but we hope that uh, this is a another tool in the toolkit for people to trying to to improve their their opportunities to hunt quail and we think stay tuned for more news on that that's
1: well I, I know again as, as one of the recipients of your philanthropy and I speak for my colleagues in the state and other portions of the quail range that uh, the whole evolution of quail, of quail coalition and especially Park City's quail coalition, quail coalition have, uh, have been the wind under our research wings and uh, we all appreciate that, we appreciate the efforts and appreciate somebody that came in and was a tail twister. And I list that tail twister as Joe Crafton. Well, so we, we thank you uh, for you're, all you've done.
2: You're very kind. and You're also very modest because a lot of things that happen across the state, the genesis, the headwaters of that was you, uh, and you know a lot of things that we learned about quail were were done by other people, but the funding flowed flowed through Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, and you were the you were the orchestra leader uh, who 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 gave direction and funded interesting research and improve the body of knowledge and, and that puts you right
1: up there with Stoddard and all the greats. Well, I often say that uh, the old Bobby Tillotson uh, song, Poetry in Motion, epitomizes quail hunting. When you're out there and you're watching those setters go across that landscape. I'm lost in the moment all the time. And you
2: you always say, only hunt with good dogs, and I'm privileged to be hunting with you.
1: Well, same goes here, and uh, again, we appreciate your leadership and your uh, motivation for keeping us all going. Thank you, Joe, for showing up today. Thank you, Dale.
0: Thank you, Dr. Dale, and thanks to Joe Crafton as our special guest today. I hope you've enjoyed that discussion and appreciate the passion and the uh, foresight, insight, that these gentlemen have for quail, quail research, and all things quail. Next month, uh, be sure to tune in to next month's episode, which will feature Dr. Dale's quail forecast, which is always an interest to those in Texas and across the region of the state. Uh, Be sure to listen in for that. If you'd like to hear more about this podcast and perhaps the previous 12 episodes of Dr. Dale on Quail, we encourage you to tune in and go to the website, quailresearch.org, for those archived episodes. This is Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at gordiansons.com.